Well, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 41. We are in a three-part, three-week series on the life of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis, a man who experienced, I'm trying to think of an English word that says it, a staggering amount of suffering and injustice, abuse, betrayal, setbacks, cruelty, fill in the blank. And this weekend, we're going to learn how Joseph found hope in God in the midst of years of horrific injustice and suffering, hope that is available today, no matter what we're facing, if we know Christ. A quick true story, uh, in college, I think it was about my last year in college, I had a philosophy professor, uh, Wilbur Eifert, Wilbur Eifert, and uh, I loved him, he was a great professor, he's taken a course in, I think it was about my last semester of college, philosophy, one of the classes, one of my electives. During that semester, he found out his wife had a very aggressive form of cancer, and I remember him talking to us as a class, telling us about it. She died during that semester, and we watched him as he talked with us about his, I mean, he was clearly shook to the core and devastated, but he affirmed his trust and his love for God and God's love for him. That same semester, within weeks, he found out that his oldest son, who was in seminary at the time, also had a different aggressive form of cancer. He also died before the end of the semester. And I watched a man who was deeply, his whole world was rocked, and yet he continued to stand in front of us through tears, through trembling voice, telling us, God is good, and I trust Him, and what He does is good. That leaves an impact on you. And the question for most of us, especially times like that, a deeply personal question is, what exactly is God's role when it comes to human suffering? That's a critical question. And at the risk of oversimplification, which is easy to do, and so I'm trying not to put that out front as a qualification, there are three basic viewpoints in the Christian world. Now, I don't normally preach by saying, here's nine views of this and six views of that and four views of this, but on this instance and because of the story here today, I felt the need, because these are so prevalent and they take you in such different directions, to at least address these three. Again, I'm simplifying things. There's nuanced versions of all three of these. But these are the three basic viewpoints in the Christian world today when it comes to God's role to suffering. They're actually in the front of your, or on your bulletin outline at the top of it. I put them there also. They're up on the screen. So let me just briefly walk through them. The first view, and a lot of professing Christians hold this view, all suffering of any kind, Moral evil or natural evil is from Satan, pure and simple. This is, by the way, probably the dominant view of prosperity preachers. Take somebody like a Joel Osteen or a Benny Hinn or Joyce Meyer. This is their view. All suffering, no matter what, is from Satan's hand. The second view, which I think is probably... This is my gut feel, the dominant view in the evangelical world, at least in Western culture, is that God allows and uses suffering in the lives of His people for a variety of reasons, for their good or discipline and for His glory, that He will make the best of 
tough circumstances or difficult things that come into our life. He will use them or allow them, and then he'll bring good out of it. Third view, which is distinctly different, is that God both allows, but also ordains and even appoints or assigns suffering in the lives of his people, again, for our good and his glory. Now, as you look at those three, needless to say, these are very different perspectives, and they take you th- down three very different roads. And my goal, here, I'm just going to be right front. Here's my goal today. My goal today is to show you why I think the third one is not only the most biblical, but also why it ultimately offers the most robust hope for a born-again Christian. Why the third option offers us the most robust hope for trusting in God in the midst of suffering. When I say true Christian, I'm talking about someone who is genuinely born again. I know not everyone here is saved or born again, but if you know Christ, if you've been redeemed, if you have repented and turned to Him in saving faith, why option number three actually gives you greater certainty and hope than any other options. We're going to consider two things as we dive into the next section of Joseph's life. Two things this morning you see in your outline. Number one, Joseph's sheer injustice and suffering that was perpetrated on him. I spent a lot of time on this in the first sermon, so I'm only going to recap in this message on that. And then number two, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, two very important affirmations Joseph made that I think are a great guide for us and will help us navigate God's role with suffering. So first of all, Joseph's injustice and suffering. And here I'm only going to do just a little bit of recap. Uh, Joseph's story begins in Israel, where he grew up. And his story begins when he was 17 years old. It ends when he was 110 years old. He's serving with his brothers when he was a teenager uh, in an area called Dothan, which is in central Israel, central northern Israel, uh, north of Jerusalem uh, by Nazareth. And he is serving there, and he's with his brothers, and you have to know two things about him that led to two very painful things in his life. Number one, his father favored him. We talked a lot about that. His father actually learned that from his dad, but he favored him. And because of that, his brothers, most of them who were older, hated his guts. That doesn't go well with brothers, typically, or siblings. And so the first painful thing that happened to him is his brothers betrayed him brutally. And they actually concocted a plan to kill him. And then they decided not to go through that plan, and so instead they came up with an equally, I think, evil option, which was to uh, basically beat him up, throw him in a pit, figure out what to do, and then end up selling him into slavery to a caravan of Ishmaelites, which is a broad category of people. But they ended up then taking him to Egypt, and there they sold him, and he spends years in slavery. Being brutal injustice over the whole story. From a human perspective, injustice lingered and went unresolved for years in Joseph's life. Cruelty, lies, betrayal, injustice. And from Joseph's perspective, none of it was resolved for years. So just to summarize, Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was betrayed. Plan concocted against him to kill him, but instead selling him into slavery. Then even in Egypt, falsely accused of potential rape, ends up in prison in a dungeon, and even in a dungeon, when he does some good things, he is, we're told, forgotten, and then several years more go by. 
I think any of us would probably be hesitant to stack up our problems against that and say, wow, you know, I have it worse than that. I mean, this guy is in the category of like Job or Jesus as far as just the sheer amount of injustice and evil perpetrated, the lies, the deception, the betrayal was severe. That brings us to our second point this morning, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, Joseph's affirmations. We're going to look at two key affirmations, and beloved, I think that these will, if you know Jesus, these are going to encourage you. If you don't know Christ yet, this is what's available in the gospel and in the cross and in the scriptures for you. Affirmation number one, Joseph's first affirmation in response to years of all of this cruelty and brutality and injustice. It is this, Joseph affirmed that God is sovereign over all suffering. He affirmed especially that God was sovereign over the details of his suffering. So after years of false imprisonment, it brings us to chapter 41, Joseph is summoned to help Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at this time, interpret a couple of really weird dreams. By the way, we noted there's some words in the text that don't tend to be on the radar screen of those in the West today. Dreams, famine. Those two words show up regularly in the Joseph story. The word famine keeps showing up. We don't know famine, and so that's not on our radar screen. And the word dream, most evangelical Christians don't pay a lot of attention to their dreams. Those in, a lot of believers in African, Asian stuff do. And the word dream shows up here quite a bit. So, chapter 41, verses 1 to 8, after several years in prison, Joseph comes to the attention of Pharaoh because Pharaoh's had a couple of really funky dreams and he needs help interpreting them. And we plug into the story, chapter 41, verse 1. After two years, Joseph dreamed that he was standing, uh, Pharaoh dreamed he was standing by the Nile. So interestingly, this is two dreams that are going to be given to a pagan king by God. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Now that's like more of a nightmare. That's just really weird. I think all of us would probably wake from that and just be a little bit shook. And Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing up on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And then Pharaoh woke again and beheld it, behold, it was a dream. And so in the morning, his spirit was troubled, <laughs> to say the least. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So eventually, Joseph comes to his attention. He asks Joseph to come in. And Joseph interprets the dreams, we're told. The dreams, very simply, are about seven years of abundance, agriculturally, that are coming, and then that'll be followed by seven years of severe famine, drought. Convinced of Joseph's accuracy, convinced that this is, the act, you know, this is what the dreams are about, Pharaoh does something in the providence of God 
that's just incredible. He takes this lowly prisoner and elevates him to prime minister. Now, Pharaoh's the most powerful man on the planet at this time in world history, so by de facto, Joseph suddenly becomes the second most powerful human being on planet Earth. Just like that. It's amazing. Now, convinced of all of this in a fascinating set of circumstances, the famine now hits. His family up north is starving in Israel, and they find themselves, some of the brothers, down in Egypt. They have no clue who Joseph is. They haven't seen him for years since he was a teenager. He's now fully Egyptian, speaking Egyptian. They don't know who he is, and they find themselves, bow, several times we're told, bowing down to him because they need food. And then starting in chapter 42, 43 and 44, Joseph recognizes them. They have no clue who he is. And so he runs them through a series of very interesting tests, and he's trying to see if their hearts have changed. That's, that's what's going on. So he does these series of tests, and he discovers their hearts have really changed. They're not the same brothers. And then we find Joseph affirming God's sovereign control over all the details of his injustice and suffering. That brings us to chapter 45, to an amazing paragraph, a couple verses here, where Joseph affirms, this is his first affirmation, that God is sovereign over his suffering, over suffering. And it's a very specific, it's not a general affirmation, it's very specific. I'm going to start in verse 3. This is at the point where he is now revealing his identity after several chapters to his brothers. They are dumbfounded and a bit terrified. Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, hey, me, Joe. <laughs> That'd be a little bit of a shock. I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. They were dismayed at his presence. That's probably putting it mildly. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I want to pause right there before we get to the meat of what I want to get into, but that's an important thing. That's an important thing. Joseph never downplays their evil. He never says, eh, shucks, you guys didn't really mean it. And it was just, you know, he never says that. Remember, forgiveness is an act of blame. You are still saying what you did was evil. Joseph never backs off of that. He says it right here. I'm your brother. Remember, I'm the guy you sold into slavery in Egypt. Obviously, they're trembling at this point. Verse 5. Here comes his affirmation. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Says it again. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For famine, there's one of our words, has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. So they're only at the beginning of the famine. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, just to make sure we're not missing this, it was not actually you, even though he's told them twice, they're the ones who did it, it's not you who sent me here, but what's he say? But God. But God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh 
Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Would you please note, young people, tracking to me, kids, everyone, how many times does he say, or use the word, is the word sent used here? It's used three different times. Three different times, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8. And again, so our question is, what does the text say? The text says that the brothers are the ones who sold him and sent him, and the text says, but it was really God who sent him. So let me do it in other words. In other words, after years of cruelty, after years of injustice, after years of betrayal and lies and deception, after years of, of, of slavery and false accusations and languishing in prison, events orchestrated by an all-powerful, all-loving God, Joseph says, in spite of all that, it was God who did this to me. It was God who did this to me. Yeah, you guys were involved. Yeah, you're guilty. But it was God who did this. A series of events, again, for Joseph, that included betrayal and slavery and justice, false accusations, prisons, lies, all of that, events orchestrated by an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. After years of ordained God's suffering, Joseph continued to trust in the Lord. There's no indication he never really didn't trust in the Lord through all this. He went through tremendous pain. But after all those years of him continuing to trust in the Lord, God then used Joseph in some very unusual, powerful ways. Reminds me of a quote of A.W. Tozer. A lot of you know his name. Pastored for years here in Chicago. Wrote numerous classics, spiritual classics and bestsellers. A.W. Tozer said this. He's got a great quote about what God does and how he uses us. He said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, to be fair, let's go back to our three options of how God relates to evil. Some believe, well, yeah, God does allow it. God does use evil. God does allow suffering into the lives of his people. But a, a lot of Bible-believing Christians would, would stop there and not go to the next step and say, but, yeah, but, but he also appoints and assigns it and ordains it at times. And yet, friends, the Bible is very clear. That is the case. That a sovereign God not only allows, not only uses evil, but even appoints suffering, assigns it specifically for our good and His purposes. And let's be honest, there's so many things going on as suffering is assigned in our lives. Well, we may never see all the reasons for it. We may see some of them. We may never see any of them. We don't know. But let me read just a few verses. I want to put these up on the screen. This is just a smattering of verses to show that God doesn't just use suffering, He doesn't just allow it, He also appoints it. Job 42, 11, speaking of the painful things that came on Joseph, I mean on Job, including losing his livestock, his homes, his children. At the end of the story, it says, these are all the troubles that the Lord brought on him. Yeah, God allowed Satan, opened the hedge, let Satan do things, but at the end, he takes credit. He doesn't pull himself off the hook 
for what took place and puts it on him. Exodus 4.11 is a verse that makes a lot of Bible believers uncomfortable. Who is it that makes man blind, deaf, or dumb? Is it not I, the Lord? Isaiah 30.26, the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. Who inflicted those wounds? God did. And he says, I will heal them. Isaiah 53.10, speaking of the Father's role in the death of Jesus, says this, and it's just as clear in the Hebrew as it is in English, it was the Father's will, you can also translate that Hebrew word pleasure, you can translate it either way, it was the Father's will to crush His Son. That is very specific assignment of suffering. Or 1 Peter 4.21, a verse that a lot of us may know. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their Creator and continue to do good. I like the words of Erwin Lutzer. A lot of us know his name. Pastor at Moody Memorial Church for decades. Erwin Lutzer says this way, God's will often involves difficulties and suffering. Now, I want to move to just a slightly different channel on this for just a minute. If I can get the map of Dothan put up here. I want, to, I, want to, I want to draw your attention to just one other aspect of God's sovereignty over suffering. Okay? Uh, you see the region of Dothan. It's got a little red triangle up there, or a little <laughs> triangle, uh, box, thing, rectangle, whatever that thing is. It's got that red line around it, okay, Dothan. It was a region in the time of Joseph. It became a city eventually. It's just south of, uh, southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Why do I draw your attention to that? It, it shows up in the text a bunch of times. You probably hardly see it. Joseph's betrayal took place in Dothan, according to chapter 37, verse 17. Dothan, interestingly, is the same exact place where Elisha, in 2 Kings 6, ran into some very real difficulties. So you have Joseph in Dothan in desperate situation, and you have Elisha, long time later, 2 Kings 6, he's also desperate in Dothan. So we got two guys who are desperate in Dothan. Now we've learned about Joseph's situation. He's betrayed, he's beaten, he's dumped in a pit. It tells us, interestingly, in chapter 42, verse 21, that Joseph pleaded for his life but to no avail. Now, it doesn't specify that he prayed. It just says, he, I assume this is with his brothers, but he pleaded with them. He may have pleaded with God, but clearly he was in great distress. He pleaded for his life. God doesn't intervene. He's betrayed. He's sold into slavery. Years of cruelty and injustice ensue. Contrast this with Elisha, a number of years later, in Dothan, same place, he is trapped. A, the, the, the Syrian army has surrounded them. His servants terrified. And Elisha asked the Lord to open his servant's eyes so he can see what's really going on. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes. And they see the hills filled with chariots of fire, heavenly troops surrounding the city. And then God even does more. He strikes the Syrian army with blindness instantaneous deliverance in Dothan. So as you're looking at these two things, it raises the obvious question. Why, 
did Joseph, who was desperate in Dothan, who pleaded for his life, who was brutally betrayed and beat up and sold into slavery, why did in Dothan God not intervene there at that point and let him go into years of cruelty and injustice and suffering? And then why, several hundred years later, Elisha suddenly, in the same exact spot, pray instantly? God shows heavenly chariots and warriors and blinds the eyes of the enemy and instantaneous deliverance in Dothan. And inquiring minds want to know, well, why the one and not the other, same spot? Why would God not intervene here and intervene here? Was God not at work in Joseph's life? We know he was. Was he at work in Elijah's life? We know he was. The only answer, I don't have a clue. The only answer comes from Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, we know the end of the story, and we know how God used Joseph. Joseph didn't know that. And just looking at the two stories at face value from what Joseph perceived and what Elisha perceived, God intervened in one instantly, and the other, he did not. For their good, God's reasons, and God's glory. God's sovereignty and suffering. That takes us to our second affirmation this morning. And this one builds on the first one. God is all-powerful, the first one, and involved in the details of whatever our suffering has been, is currently, or will come to pass. Second affirmation builds on it, and it's very important. It's the other side of the coin. God is good and can be fully trusted in the details of our suffering. God is good and can be fully trusted in the details of our suffering. Now, there's a problem with the English word good. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Problem of Pain, chapter 3, by the way, Divine Goodness, one of the best chapters I've ever read on the love of God and what it really is versus the American sentimentized, you know, sentimental version of it. C.S. Lewis says, when we think of the word good and apply it to God, our idea of God's goodness almost always means his loving kindness towards us. That's what we think of when we think of good. And then he goes on to make this very iconic uh, description. He said, you know what? When most of us say we want a father in heaven, he said, no, we don't. We want a grandfather in heaven. He said, that's what most of us really mean. Kind of a gentle, old, senile guy that just wants to buy us ice cream and make sure we have a good time, right? I mean, what are grandpas for? I have 10 grandkids. It's fun to, when their parents are gone to, you know, give them a little extra stuff here and there. Not my job. My job. Most of us want a grandfather in heaven. And so when we hear the word good, we think grandpa, not daddy. Because a dad and a dad's love can be fierce. Even a righteous father's love can be fierce because on them is the duty of discipline and discipling and the whole training and all of that. And it can be a very different relationship. And so it's a good observation that our word good doesn't... The, 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 biblical, def, here's a, you know, the biblical definition of good is far broader and deeper than our sentimentalized American version, our kind of uh, shallow American version of the word good. Which brings us to Joseph's second affirmation, an affirmation filled with hope. And it's in chapter 50, verses 18 to 21. 
read for us by Wayne this morning. And it's anything but sentimental. But it's filled with deepness and richness of the biblical definition of good. So starting in verse 18, Joseph's second affirmation, God is good no matter what He has appointed in our lives, what He has ordained or assigned to us. Verses 18 to 21. His brothers came and fell down before him. By my count, that's at least the third time that they're fulfilling the dream that Joseph had when he was 17 of them bowing down to him. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, they're terrified at this point that he's going to have them killed or imprisoned or something. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And now we come to verse 20, which is the key verse. And the key verse boils down to two verbs used in this verse in Hebrew, and they're the identical verb used twice. So it's the identical word used twice. Let me read it, and I'll tell you what it is. As for you, you meant evil. That's a Hebrew verb. It means what it says, meant or intended or planned or willed. You meant evil against me, period, or comma, but God, now same exact Hebrew verb, meant, planned, willed, it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. I love the last sentence, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Next weekend, we're going to be looking at total forgiveness. We're going to talk about what that means in letting things go that have been done. Now, go back to those two words. I want to tell you what the text doesn't say. Sometimes that's helpful. And then what it does say, after I read it to you. The text does not say. It's so easy to read into a biblical text. I, I, I'm guilty of this all the time. I thought it said this, and then I read it closer. It's like, oh, it says the opposite. Okay, the text does not say, as for you, you meant evil, but God ended up using it for good. That is not what the text says. The text does, what's the first question of biblical interpretation? What does the text say? Not, what do I like? Do I think this is good? Does this make me feel good? I mean, you can ask those questions, but those come way down the line in biblical hermeneutics. That is not the first question. First question is always, what does the text say? What does the text say? The text says, you meant, intended, willed this for evil. God meant, or intended, or willed this for good. Again, same Hebrew verb. The brothers planned and intended their sinful acts, and God planned and intended their sinful acts. Or let me do this in another words. In other words, God willed that the brother's evil actions would come to pass to accomplish his purposes, yet God is completely innocent and the brothers are fully guilty. Let me say it one more time. God willed that the brother's evil actions and everything they did would come to pass to accomplish his purposes. And yet God is innocent of any evil they did and the brothers are fully accountable. Now, I know your next question is, can you explain that? And I can give you a one-word answer, no. 
I have no idea how to reconcile that, but it's very clear in the text. And here's where Bible-believing Christians often fall into a trap. I hear this language quite often. I don't understand it, so I can't affirm it. I don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't understand the doctrine of predestination. I don't understand the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. I don't understand this or that. It's too complex, so I'm going to have to withhold judgment. Look it. Remember, you can affirm a doctrine that's clear in the text when you don't understand it fully. Otherwise, we're going to be withholding judgment on all kinds of things, like the doctrine of the Trinity, like the doctrine of the Incarnation, like the doctrine of predestination, like the doctrine of hell. I mean, go down the line. If you have to wait until you can fully wrap your head around it and understand it, which is an arrogant thing for any of us to say, we're going to end up not embracing many key doctrines. I can affirm something that's clear in the text even though I have no idea how to explain it. So the point of verse 20, ladies and gentlemen, young people, point of verse 20, don't miss this, after years of cruelty and mistreatment, Joseph looks at his brothers and says, God did this to me. And he's good. He's good. He did it for good. If you know your Bibles, some of you immediately had a verse come to mind right now, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And even that verse, a lot of us misread. Listen to it very carefully. We know... In all things, God works for the good of those who go to church and are religious. Is that what it says? I heard one person say no. Good. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, but it goes on, who have been called that's God's elect, according to His purpose. So if you're one of God's own, if you're one of His chosen, if you are one who loves and fears Him, whatever pain is in your life, has been in your life, will be in your life or my life, here's what I can know, that God is somehow in the details. He is not only allowing but ordaining it in my life for things I may never fully understand, and He's good. And I can trust him because he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's all-loving. Several years ago, uh, Becky and I were in a very painful season of ministry. I shared this in the first service. And a little over a decade ago, and we were in this extremely painful season. And we were overseas uh, in Saudi Arabia doing some ministry, and, a, and an elder in a church there handed me a, a book by a Puritan. You ever read any books by Puritans? And, and I like Puritan books, but this one seemed a little bit opaque. In 1678, John Flavel, I'd never read John Flavel before. The title of the book is The Mystery of Providence. And so I, grace, I okay, I'll, I'll read this. So I started reading it. It is one of the most helpful books I have ever read. In fact, our pastoral team has now read through it. The Mystery of God's Providence. I want to read one paragraph as he applies providence to Joseph's story and then draws out the implication. Listen to this. This is, this is worth the price of admission this morning if you don't hear anything else. Sometimes for the good of his own people, 
God uses those who intend nothing but evil and mischief to His people. Let me say it one more time. Sometimes for the good of His own people, God uses those who intend nothing but evil and mischief towards His people. Joseph's brothers are an example of this. Even though they intended to ruin him, they were actually instrumental to his advancement. In all the sad and afflictive providences that may befall you, remember that God is the author and arranger of them all. Set before you the sovereignty of God and I the wisdom of God in all your afflictions. And then he goes on to argue that that is the way to find hope in the midst of suffering. Not that just God will use some bad things in your life and help you bring some good out of it, although he does that. Remember, he's in the details. He may be doing things in your life that are extremely painful for many different reasons. Discipline, refinement, holiness, things down the road you have no clue about with children and grandchildren and subsequent generations. And it's for your good and His glory. But we have to remember He's good. Or to quote C.S. Lewis again, he had another small book, Grief Observed. If you're going through grief, or when you do go through grief, this is a great little book to read. In that book, he makes a very interesting observation about how Christians end up in the ditch, in the weeds, when it comes to suffering. He said, uh, when most people encounter, he's referring to professing Christians, when most people encounter pain, suffering, betrayal, uh, mistreatment, somebody tells a lie about you, somebody's cruel to you, you know, you fill in the blank, somebody uh, steals from you or, or whatever, he said, most Christians, they don't end up as atheists, or most professing Christians, or even most church people, they don't suddenly just end up as atheists. Oh, there's no God. Some do, but the majority don't. He said, really, the, the danger at that point for most professing Christians is not that they cease believing in God. The great danger is that most start believing horrible things about God. Like, well, God doesn't care, or He's not good, or see, there he goes again, or he's cruel, or he forgot about me, or he's out to get me, or he's not worth trusting, and down the lane we go. And that is why this affirmation, coming from the lips of someone who endured years of brutal cruelty, mistreatment, lies, unjust prison, accusations, is so powerful because it comes from the lips of someone who was deeply wounded by God. He acknowledges God's the one who wounded him, and yet he says God is good and what he was doing was good along the way. So let me circle back. Just to be clear, the reason a true born-again Christian can be so hopeful when you're going through a season of suffering is because we have a good, all-powerful, all-knowing all-loving Heavenly Father who is in the details of that suffering. He knows exactly what He's doing. His timing is always right on schedule. And God's people, hear this, can be assured that He is wisely directing all things for our good, His purposes, 
and his glory. That's why option three is so powerful. All right, time to land the airplane. Got to land this thing. So pull your seats up, put your tray tables down, fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. There's at least four things I want to end with quickly, but these are four things that are critical if you want real hope and lasting joy in the midst of painful times and painful seasons. Here they are. Number one, I have to be a born-again Christian. If I don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit alive in you, you don't have the spiritual resources to draw on in order to fight for joy and fight for hope. So number one, if you don't know Christ, if you've never been born again, if you have not repented and trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, that's the very first thing. I have to have the Holy Spirit alive in me. Secondly, I must believe that God is fully in control of all things in my life, control of every single detail of my life, even my afflictions and my suffering, that he has sovereign reasons when he chooses to wound me or afflict me, and that he knows exactly what he's doing, even when his timing baffles me, like we saw in our series in Ecclesiastes, even when his timing just leaves me utterly confused that he's good and he's in, he's in charge. He's absolutely in the details of everything. Third thing I have to remember, that he is good and righteous and kind. He uses different definitions of those words than we would necessarily, but that he is ultimately working all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly in my life for his sovereign purposes. And fourthly, this one's critical. I only added this one yesterday as I was thinking through the sermon and realized I missed something really important. That we actively praise Him for His providence. That we are a thankful people. Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says, it's not enough not to murmur. Just not murmuring is not enough. I need to go to the next step and make sure I'm praising God. So let me show you very practically how that, that looks, and then we will, we're going to sing a couple songs. George Mueller, a lot of you know the name, German missionary to Bristol, England, starts a series of orphanages. God does incredible things through him. After 39 years of marriage, in February of 1870, his wife Mary died. He was devastated. His first sermon after she died was from Psalm 119, verse 68. This was the title of the sermon. There's a husband in deep sorrow. His wife of almost 40 years is dead. Here's his very first sermon. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and what you do is good. Here's his three points. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Point number two. The Lord was good and did good in leaving her with me so long. And point three, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, as Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, would say, that is how to find the rare jewel of Christian contentment. That's how you find it. Father, we are thankful for the story of Joseph 
It captivates us. It's so compelling. It's so full of brutality and injustice. And yet we thank you for the way that Joseph responded and the way you worked in his life and chose to put it in Holy Scripture. As we sing now about our wonderful, merciful Savior and then how great thou art, may we sing differently than we would have 45 minutes ago. In Christ's name.